The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, David Kessler, is the world's foremost expert on grief. He's the author of five best-selling books, including You Can Heal Your Heart, Finding Peace After Breakup, Divorce, or Death with Louise Hay. He co-authored two bestsellers with the legendary Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. One is called On Grief and Grieving, and the other is Life Lessons. His first book, The Needs of the Dying, was a number one best-selling hospice book, and it received praise from Mother Teresa. David's work has been featured on CNN, NBC, Fox, PBS, and Dr. Oz. David's a contributing editor for Oprah.com, Dr. Oz's ShareCare.com, and Anderson Cooper 360. His newest book is Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. David Kessler, welcome to Essential Conversations. I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really interested in this discussion. I was very moved by the book, and I knew Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Very cool. Yeah. I, back in the 80s, I had this organization that was part of my synagogue called Earthrise, and we brought her in for a, a dinner and discussion, and the cost of coming to be an invitee to, to meet her is you had to have read a number of her books by then so that there was no introductory conversation. I was just diving right into, you know, what she's working on. So one of the things that she's known for, and and you're known for in the same context, is what she called the five stages of dying. And, And here you're bringing out the sixth stage of grief. So there's a connection in the way you're looking at these things. So just lay out the five stages of dying and how you apply them to grief. Sure. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, as you mentioned, in her groundbreaking book in 1969, identified five stages of dying. They were not any kind of mandatory place anyone who was dying had to visit. They were just what she had seen were patterns that seemed to happen in people who were dying. Then throughout the years, they would get adapted for grief in all kinds of ways. And we had an ongoing discussion about, should they be adapted for grief? And then at one point, we had a discussion about, well, they're being adapted, whether she's adapting them or not. And 
she really wanted to be clear about how they worked. And so her and I wrote, She, I had the privilege of adapting those stages and her stages for grief in our book on grief and grieving. Just to note, on page one of that book, we say they're not linear, they overlap, they're not a map for grief. Our grief is unique as our fingerprint. But it's interesting to watch now how they still sort of get reduced to five easy steps for grief. And I don't know what your experience was with Elizabeth, but Elizabeth was a rule-breaking, organic, messy person. And once in a while on Facebook, someone will make the comment, oh, you and Elizabeth are just trying to tidy up our grief and make us follow your rules. And I'll think, first of all, there's nothing further from the truth. You know, I've been through grief, I'm sure you have, there's nothing tidy about it. And Elizabeth would hate the idea that the stages have become rules. So after my own son died three years ago, I just felt like acceptance was not enough. I wanted to find meaning. And I interviewed so many people whose spouses had died, their children had died, their siblings had died, their parents had died. I was always fascinated by Viktor Frankl's work. And I really thought for me, meaning was the sixth stage of grief. And I'm so honored that her family and her foundation allowed me to add an iconic stage to her stages. So that's sort of the background of them and where we are today. I, I think that so many people want a roadmap for dying, a Absolutely. roadmap for grief, and they'll take her stages, your stages, and turn them into that, even though that wasn't the intent at all. Because I, I don't think people like to have to go through this without, I mean, they want something, okay, this is what I have to do. Now I know what's next. And then, you know, I'm going to bargain. I'm going to do this. And well, it's, it's very interesting. You're exactly right that so many times when I'm giving talks, professionals and academics will go, there's no map. We really have issues with that. And people in grief don't really have the issues. Like you said, people in grief are like, this is so out of their comfort zone. And just to know there's some loose scaffolding out there is comforting to most people. Yeah. And I think if you leave it as loose scaffolding rather than you have to do it this way, right. then then people will will find some comfort in it. But, but I, w- I want to focus on the, the notion of meaning, which, of course, is in the title of the book is Finding Meaning. And you say some interesting things about that. I'm going to sort of quote back, quote yourself to you uh, from from the book very early on. Really, it's just the second page. You say, When a loved one dies or when we experience any kind of serious loss, we want more than hard facts of that loss. We want to find meaning. Loss can wound and paralyze, but finding meaning in loss empowers us to find a path forward. Meaning helps us make sense of grief. So how does that, how does meaning help us make sense of grief? Well, one of the things that it will either say before or go on to say that does get confusing for people is I'm not in any way suggesting the meaning is found in the death. If your loved one had a horrible death from cancer or a brain tumor 
or was murdered, there's no part of me that's saying there's amazing meaning to be found. But I am saying afterwards, we do have the choice to find meaning in what we do in our life. And that meaning, I think, does not take away the pain, but it becomes a cushion for the pain. It becomes a way, none of us want our loved ones to be forgotten or be meaningless. Their lives were not meaningless. And so I think we're trying to naturally find some meaning. And when people sort of are just left with, here's the facts, here's why they died. You know, one of the things I've learned after decades is no one's ever said to me, wow, that was such a satisfying why. <laughs> the facts just come up as inadequate. We want more, and I think the more is meaning. So I want to delve a little bit more into this um, insight you have here about you're not saying the death is meaningful or the loss is meaningful. A lot of people go there. I mean, I, I deal with a lot of people, especially when I was a congregational rabbi and these horrible things would happen to people. They want meaning in that event. In, in other words, oh, you know, someone dies and it's because God has a plan or because um, this is part of an, a bigger unfolding uh, and, the, and the death was necessary. I, I actually had one person, this was a, another rabbi who's, who was an alcoholic, uh, got in a car crash. His wife was with him in the car. She died in a car crash. He did not. He actually walked away pretty much unscathed. And he went into 12-step program, Alcoholics Anonymous, got sober. And he used to say that God caused the death of his, the crash and the death of his wife in order to get him into AA. And I mean, to me, that's just a very sick narcissism that that kind of theology doesn't work for me at all. But you're saying something very different. Yeah. You know, I said, here's some thoughts that'll help you understand. And I think I give seven thoughts. And the fifth one is your loss is not a test, it's not a blessing, right. it's not a plan. Loss is what happens in life. Meaning is what we make after. I mean, listen, the things around God break down logically at a certain point. I mean, I believe in God. I believe there's more here than we see. I don't think that there's a good, this is just for me, I don't think there's a God up there going, oh, B needs a lesson, so I'm going to kill A randomly to give B the lesson. I don't think that God exists. You know, when the, you know, like I saw on social media, it comes up a lot of the time around 9-11. There's this video that says Jane's son was late for work. Um, you know, Bill was stuck on the subway, and it goes through, you know, 10 people getting delayed. And then it talks about they were all on the way to work at the World Trade Center. The next time God puts an obstacle in front of you, he might be saving you. Right. And I thought, well, wait a minute. What's the message there? Everyone who's late gets saved, and God punished everyone who was on time? Like... <laughs> Those kind, you know, that logic. Sure. 
it's like, wait a minute, I don't know that I believe in this punishing God. One of the things, you might even know the story, when my mother died decades ago, the rabbi told a story about uh, apples, you know, on the tree, and that someone saw them being picked off and thought that that was a very horrible thing. And somehow it got explained that if the apples were left on, they would die and shrivel, and that even though we don't understand the concept. And to me, that made more sense that, you know, maybe there is a heaven we go to and God reveals, like, why it happened the way it happened. But I don't think we have the logic to go, that's why your daughter had to die. That's why your mom. I don't think we know that. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with that. I don't think there's a heaven. I'm, I don't have that kind of theology, and I don't think God reveals anything, you know, because there's, I don't know if there's any order to it at all. Right. Uh, it seems pretty random to me. But yeah, um, yeah it's true. Yeah. I mean, look at flowers, look at plants. I mean, you know, every day, you know, there's a beginning and an end. Why do we think, you know, somehow we would be different in all of this? Yeah. I mean, death is simply a part of the reality. Um, and and, and I, I think, of course, and it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking when it comes to your world and sure. your loved one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why people gravitate towards some kind of story that makes it okay. I think that people will spend a lot of energy defending a God idea that death challenges, especially if it's a, you know, I mean, you know, my, my mother, for example, is 91 years old. She's healthy as a 91 year old can be, but eventually she's going to die. I will be sad to lose my mom, but I'm not, I don't need a story to explain why did God take my mom? You know, it's just, that's not going to be in my head because that's, she's 91 plus years old. But when it's something else, when it's a child, I had a case in my synagogue that where a husband was driving on his way to work. He had a cell phone. This is when cell phones were the size of bricks. And he just called home to say, I love you. And just as he was doing that, some guy drove coming the other way on the, on the highway, jumped the median and had a crash and killed the guy in a horrible way. Now, it's natural. There must be a reason. There must be a story that can't be. Life cannot be that chaotic, but I, I personally think it is. But, you know, you talk in the book, I mean, the title is Finding Meaning. But in the book, you actually you use that phrase, certainly, but you also use the phrase making or creating meaning. And I, I think there's a difference. And the book is really about making or creating meaning. It's what you, it's what you said a minute ago, that the meaning comes after the event itself. And I have to tell you, to tie the two conversations together, meaning actually is a story. Hmm. You know, so it's interesting, you know, if 
Well, I don't do the stories. If someone says to me that their child, their husband is dancing in the afterlife or celebrating with Jesus or whatever it may be, if it brings that person in grief comfort, wonderful. That is their meaning. That is how they're doing it. Now, and, you know, a lot of times if I was to go, I don't know that that's the meaning. I mean, look, I haven't died. Maybe it is the meaning. I'm I'm not arrogant enough to go, my meaning's correct and yours isn't. I mean, who knows? I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you even say in the book that uh, when addressing issues of the afterlife, you write that you speak many languages, Christian, right. evangelical, Christian, Catholic, Jewish, atheist. Yeah, I think, I think that's the only way to do this kind of work. Uh, you can't go in with your story and try to overpower another person's story. So, yeah, I, th- I think that we create meaning because we can't live in a meaningless world. I think it's, it's just sort of part of our psychological makeup. We need meaning which is why I like the fact that you call it the sixth sixth stage, because it's just not enough to be, okay, I've made my peace with it. There's, there is a deeper thing of which human beings are capable, and that is this meaning-making. So in, in, your, in, in your experience, how does faith play a role? Do, do you notice, are people who are agnostics or atheists have a more difficult time making meaning or finding meaning than people who have a religious faith they they rely on? Well, it's interesting. Uh, People who I've worked with who are atheists or agnostic have a lot of meaning. They just don't attribute the meaning to God. And I haven't... the, The interesting thing about religion is that it isn't so much the religion that I've seen that's sort of been the difference. It's people who seem to really remain in one emotional place, as they often refer to as stuck, or forever unhappy, doomed, in pain, seem to have decided it's all meaningless. And there is something about some meaning, whatever your meaning is, that does seem to help us propel forward and continue living our life. You know, there was an interesting conversation that I I heard on the radio years and years ago when the tsunami hit. It wasn't Japan, but it was a Buddhist country that was hit by a tsunami and a huge number of people were, were killed. And someone on NPR contacted the Buddhist Church of America, which is a, a Pure Land Buddhist organization, and talked to the head of the organization and said, how do you explain these things? You know, is this God's doing? And of course, Buddhists don't have that kind of God concept. And the priest said to the reporter, he said, I don't ask for a reason why. My question is, how can we now alleviate the suffering that's occurred? And that's a powerful way of making meaning is alleviating suffering. It could be your own suffering, but certainly the suffering of others. And for people who are agnostic or atheists or lack a a God concept where God is in control and God is rewarding and God is punishing, this notion of of tying your meaning-making 
to the alleviating of suffering was very compelling to me. I don't, I don't what, what's your thought about Which that? Which is the idea that I talk about in there, and I've seen so many people do, is the idea of moving from the why to the how. Mm. And it's interesting, I just did the Larry King show, and he talked about this idea of why shootings happen. And, you know, we literally discussed, are we really going to get to one single answer of why? Isn't it more important we go into how can we reduce the number of shootings? How can we prevent them? What, you know, there's so much more room in how in the future to make a better future with more meaning than there is to be in the why. Now, obviously, when you've had a loved one die, I tell people to put on their detective hats. You do need to ask the questions. But for most people in grief, there comes a time when you've gotten about as many answers as you're going to get to. And then that's the time to begin to look at, let's go from the how, from the why to the how. And it usually looks like people saying, I can't to, I don't want to. Okay, how? How can we make sure this never happens again? How can we make the world a better place? How can I honor this person? Whatever it may be. That is an excellent way to bring this to a close, to move from why to how, because in the how, there is an intrinsic meaning and a way of, of moving forward where the why just sort of leaves you floundering with a, just a giant question mark because there's never going to be a true answer. And never going to be satisfying if you found an answer. Yeah, example, exactly. You may say, I've got the answer, but you're somewhere in your unconscious, your subconscious, you're saying you, you really don't trust that answer. But moving from why to how, that is a good place for us to end and good advice to those people who are in a state of, of grief and uh, are, are listening to the show. Our guest today, David Kessler, is the author of a new book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. You can learn more about his work at his website, grief.com. Tell us a little bit about the website and what people can get there. There's lots of resources on there. There's online classes, places you can see me in person at different events, retreats. And for anyone who gets the book, I know this is hard work. They'll also find a free companion class that'll go along with the book. Fantastic. So David, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you. I appreciate it. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings, and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Egg. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of A Guided Life Podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it.
The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.